So friends, we are in the midst of a sermon series on the book of Romans, and we've been in this series for a number of weeks. We'll be in it for a few weeks still. But even if this series lasted an entire year, I want you to know that we still couldn't plumb the depths of this magnificent book. There would always be more to learn, more to know, more to discover. Uh, Martin Luther, that great catalyst of the Protestant Reformation, gives us a gem of a quote. This is what he says. This epistle is the most important document in the New Testament. It is the gospel in its purest expression. Not only is it well worth a Christian's while to know it word for word by heart, but also to meditate on it day by day. It is the soul's daily bread and can never be read too often or studied too much. It's a brilliant light, almost enough to illumine the whole Bible. Years ago, a young lady named Melinda Hasty was in the youth group here at Woodmont Christian Church. She was a member of the famed Jubilation Choir led by Tom Schuyler. After graduating from Franklin Road Academy, Melinda attended Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And when she was in college, she got involved in ministry. Having benefited from being in a youth group herself, she wanted to give that same experience to others. And so Melinda teamed up with another college student, a young man named Dennis Herman. And together, Dennis and Melinda began doing youth ministry at a local high school. They led a Bible study for the students there. And Dennis and Melinda's Bible study was one particular high school boy. That high school boy was so affected by their ministry that one day he decided to go into ministry himself. In time, Dennis and Melinda fell in love. They married. They had kids. They moved to Nashville. Meanwhile, that boy in their Bible study went to seminary. He became an ordained minister. And eventually, in the providence of God, he came to Woodmont Christian Church, where he is now the minister for children and families. That's right. I was in a Bible study led by Melinda Hasty when I was in high school. Melinda Hasty is a product of this church. Tom Schuyler, Melinda Hasty, and Justin Gung, the circle is somehow complete. Well, long ago in that Bible study that I was in in high school, Dennis and Melinda challenged us to memorize different passages of Scripture. And one of the passages was the passage that's before us today, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I have great affection for this passage. It's been with me for many years. It goes like this. Therefore, in view of God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you to offer yourselves as living sacrifices to God, holy and pleasing to him. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to know and do the will of God, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, when we hear this passage, our ears should perk up right away. Our ears should perk up right away because the first word is therefore, and therefore is significant in the writings of Paul. In the writings of Paul, whenever we hear the word therefore, we should ask what it's there for, because it's there for a reason. 
It's a signal word. It signals a change in topic and tone. It tells us that Paul is about to pivot and take us in a new direction. The book of Romans can be divided into two broad sections. Part one is chapters one through 11, and part two is chapters 12 through 16. In Romans 1 through 11, Paul explains some of the fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. Sin, salvation, sonship, sanctification, and the sovereignty of God. In Romans 1 through 11, Paul's writing is heady, it's intellectual, and complex. An example of this is Romans 8, beginning in verse 3. Listen to this and try to follow along. Paul says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So there you go. Heady, intellectual, complex, Uh, The wording may seem a little convoluted, but uh, the substance of the message is certainly compelling. But then Paul moves from theology to application, from uh, doctrine to practice, from the abstract to the concrete. In Romans 12 through 16, Paul's topic becomes the real-world application of what was just discussed in the previous chapters. And the tone of Paul's writing becomes simple, direct, and concrete. An example of this is in Romans 12, beginning in verse 9. Listen to this and see if it's any different than the passage you just heard. Paul says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Share with those in need. Practice hospitality. So there you go. Simple, direct, concrete. Biblical scholar William Barclay explains what's going on here. He says, here we have Paul following the pattern he always followed when writing to his friends. He always ended with practical advice. The sweep of his mind may search through the infinities, but he never gets lost in them. He always finishes with his feet firmly planted on the ground. He can and does wrestle with the deepest problems that theology has to offer, but he always finishes with the ethical demands that govern us all. So Paul is about to pivot and go in a new direction. He's about to change the topic and tone. In Romans 1 through 11, he gives us some really good news. God has gone to infinite lengths to save us. God's kindness toward us is unending, and God's kindness leads us to repentance. While we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. So now, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In Romans 1 through 11, the news is so good that chapter 11 ends with a doxology, with this spontaneous burst of praise. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, having finished with that, having done that, Paul is about to pivot and take us in a new direction. Paul wants to raise a question, and it's a question that will shape the rest of the book and indeed our entire lives if we let it. And the question is this, what are we to do? 
in response to what God has done for us. In response to God's great mercy, in response to God's amazing grace, in response to God's unfailing love, in response to all that God has done in Jesus Christ, what do we do? How do we reply? How then shall we live? Well, Paul's own answer is Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, in view of God's great mercy to us, offer yourselves as living sacrifices to God, holy and pleasing to him. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now, there are three words in that sentence that I just want to briefly highlight. Sacrifice, offering, and worship. Those three words, sacrifice, offering, and worship, are all closely connected. They are all of one piece. Sacrifices and offerings are outward expressions of a person's inward devotion or one's inward state, and they're presented to God as a form of worship. From the very beginning of time, human beings have worshiped God with sacrifices and offerings. Uh, we have done this from the very beginning up into the present day. Uh, and human, humans have done this not just across time, but also across the world, across cultures. Uh, the Egyptians did this in Northern Africa. Uh, the Mayans did this in Latin America. The Romans did this in Europe. We still do this here today in America. Each and every week do we not pass the offering plate through the pews. Uh, whenever I walk into my favorite Thai restaurant, uh, it's just a little hole in the wall in downtown Nashville, um, I walk through the front door and I come face to face with a statue of Buddha. And there before the statue of Buddha, uh, the restaurant owners have placed certain things, things like spices uh, and oil um, and cookies. Now what are these things? These things are offerings. The restaurant owners are using these physical, material things, and they're making an offering to their God in worship. So across time and across cultures, human beings have worshipped God with sacrifices and offerings. It should come as no surprise that the first people that we meet in the, in the pages of the Bible worship God in the same way. Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, worshipped God with sacrifice and offering. Noah Abraham, Moses, and David, they all worshiped God with sacrifice and offering. The entire nation of Israel had a sacrificial system to worship God. This is a perfectly natural and normal thing. It's a human thing. It is instinctive to who we are as human beings. It's universal across time and across cultures. An offering was a physical gift that a person brought before God to express devotion, or praise. Offerings came in a variety of forms. You could bring br uh, bread, uh, grain, um, oil, uh, meat, uh, the flesh of an animal, uh, drink. Offerings were made for a variety of reasons. Uh, there were offerings of praise, offerings of uh, penitence, offerings of purification. Here's something that I think is interesting. Days after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph went to the temple in Jerusalem. And why did they go there? Well, they went there to make a thank offering to God for the birth of their son. They offered a sacrifice of two pigeons. 
This was not a bull, a ram, or a goat. This was two pigeons. This is the smallest allowable sacrifice. And it denoted that Jesus was born into a family that was poor. In Romans 12, Paul says that in response to God's mercy and grace, in response to God's unfailing love, we should bring something before God as an offering. But what? A little bit of grain? Some incense? Uh, some meat or libation? No. None of these is enough to express our thanks to God. According to Paul, the only adequate offering that you can make is you. The only adequate offering that you can make is yourself, your whole self, all of you, every part of you, your body, your soul, your mind, your time, your passion, your treasure, your love, your loyalty, your everything. As Christians, we are called to take our lives and place them before God as an offering. And we're called to worship God by living holy, H-O-L-Y, and holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, for God. In the Jewish sacrificial system, if an animal was brought um, before God uh, in, in, in an act of worship, the whole animal was used. The entire specimen, there is not one part of the animal that was uh, left out. In the same way, we are called to worship God by living holy and holy before God. Uh, at some point in history, uh, and I'm not exactly sure when, worship was reduced to just something that we do on Sunday morning. But the biblical understanding of worship is so much greater. It's so much richer and deeper and fuller. Worship is not something confined to one hour of one day of the week. Worship is not something compartmentalized or fenced in and kept separate from our quote-unquote real lives. No. True worship is to offer our whole self to God. True worship is the offering of our lives and all that they contain to God for his glory and for his holy purposes. Everything, my friends, everything can be used to worship God. Every day, every deed, every decision, our words, our work, our ways, our moments, our minds, our material goods, everything can be dedicated to the Lord, consecrated to the Lord. All that we have, all that we are, all that we do is to be an offering to God given in response to God's mercy and grace. Not only is this the most comprehensive way to worship God, it is also, my friends, the most personal way that we can worship God. This is the most unique, personal, and precious thing that we can give to God, ourselves. Because no one can give my heart to God but me. And I can't give your heart to God, only you can give your heart to God. I can't be a living sacrifice to God on behalf of Anne-Marie or Donovan. No, only they can be a living sacrifice to God. I can't be an offering in place of you only you can be an offering to God. Friends, when you offer yourself to God, you offer something that no one else can offer. You give something that only you 
can give. Frances Havergal was a popular singer and songwriter in England in the late 1800s. Uh, her beautiful voice was highly sought where she lived. She often sang with the local Philharmonic. Uh, she was also a Christian. Um, she went to church every single Sunday. In fact, she was the daughter of a minister. But even though she was a regular churchgoer, I mean, she went to worship every single week, her spiritual life was lacking. In her own words, it seemed hollow. But one day, the grace of God came to her, and her life went from hollow to hallowed. One day, she received a book called All for Jesus, which stressed the importance of making Christ preeminent in every aspect of life. And it was like her eyes were opened to a whole new world. She says, I saw clearly the blessedness of true consecration. I saw it as a flash of electric light. And what you see, you can never unsee. There must be full surrender before there can be full blessedness. Well, Frances Havergal, the famous singer-songwriter in England in the late 1800s, she wrote a beautiful song which is still sung in churches today across the world. It's called, Take My Life and Let It Be. This is how the first verse goes. Take my life and let it be, consecrated Lord to thee. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love, at the impulse of thy love. In further verses, she says, take my feet, my voice, my lips, my moments. Lord, I dedicate it all to you. Take my silver and my gold. Not a mite, not a penny would I withhold. And then in verse 6, I love this. Take my love, my God I pour, at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Ever only all for thee. Friends, that is the essence of true worship. That is the meaning, the biblical definition of worship. In 1972, Marlon Brando, playing the character Don Corleone in the movie The Godfather, uttered the words, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Pardon my terrible impression. <laughs> Since then, that line has become one of the most famous lines in the history of American cinema. Today, my friends, my sisters and brothers, I urge you, I appeal to you to make an offer that can't be refused. Make your offer not to the Godfather, but rather to God the Father. God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, offer yourselves, your whole selves, as a living sacrifice to God, holy and pleasing to him. This is your spiritual act of worship. It's an offer that he won't refuse. It's an offer that he can't refuse. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.